Does God give perfect evangelism opportunities? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, today we are jumping back into Acts in our zigzag between Acts and the Epistles for the next few months. Um, we are picking up in Acts where we left off there a little while ago. Um, so we are in Acts 8, the back, uh, the back half of that. Um, looking at what happened after uh, the first martyrdom. Yeah, and that's an important timestamp to understand what happens here. Um, you know, as you said in our zigzag, I like that phrase, by the way, Aaron, props to you on that one. Our zigzag approach of Acts in the epistles, you know, last we left off, we were, we were looking at the expansion of persecution of the church. It started, we'd seen some of the leaders, Peter and so forth, being arrested, but then Stephen is martyred, it amps up everything, and it really... It connects back to what Jesus had said that the blueprint of the church growth would be in Acts 1.8. And, and of course, we know that's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the ends of the earth. And we have to keep that in mind as we're looking at this story today, this passage today, and then some coming up as well. It's critical we keep that framework in front of us because what we see here is, and just before this with Philip, and he plays a key role in this. Philip shared with the Samarit or with the Samaritans rather uh, back in earlier in, in chapter eight, the beginning of this chapter, and so that's kind of a step from Judea to Samaria. We're making that movement, and here he's going to share with an Ethiopian, and he's helping take a step from the third Samaria to the fourth, the ends of the earth, and a big part of all of this is because of Stephen's martyrdom that uh, the church was spread out. So. Again, keeping in mind that formula that Jesus declared that he established, and we see that happening so much in these mid-chapters mid of Acts. As we discuss uh, what happened in this encounter, let's, let's kick off the way that is the best way to do it with actually reading the passage itself. So we are looking at Acts 8, 26 through 40, and this is from the CSB translation, which is one we really like. Yes, we're fond of it. <laughs> yep. Uh, Starting at verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. 
And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So, that's an interesting interesting event right there. I mean, it's not too often you're just walking down the road and someone's like, hey, can you, sh- can you talk to me about what this means? <laughs> yeah, this is what we call a divine appointment. Or divine encounter. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. It goes back to your leading question to this episode, but I mean, clearly you have uh, stamps of the Holy Spirit working. It's it's stated as much, but it's clear, it's evident that that God was doing something amazing in this whole encounter. And, and I think it's really the first question as we get ready to pepper this passage with the questions that it raises. The first one that I see here is, you know, when you look at the beginning, was the beginning of this encounter as cryptic as it seems? You have these vague instructions coming to Philip that the Holy Spirit comes and says, just go to this road in the middle of nowhere. And it seems like that's it. And Philip goes and and then, all right, now go chase down this chariot and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like it's rather cryptic. Well, first of all, as we consider this question, um, we have to remember that Scripture does not record every details of every event, only what the Holy Spirit wanted us to know. So for example, uh, in Acts itself, when we come across the sermons of Peter at Pentecost, for example, and uh, Paul and his sermons, it, it, it's safe to assume that they, they may not be the complete manuscript of what was preached. They may have preached a lot more, and the Holy Spirit just ga- guided the writers, Luke in this case, just to give us that portion of it. And same thing with events. There, you know, we don't have every event recorded, nor do we have every detail of every event recorded. So, with that understood, the Holy Spirit may have given Philip more to go on here. We we can't say that 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 did not happen. Mm-hmm. But I think it's reasonable to guess that this may have been all that he was given. Philip was given. Uh, it would make sense because it would be stretching Philip's faith the church's faith through Philip as well. And then if you dovetail the beginning and the end, you get these two bookends. I mean, we're going to talk about it in a minute, but the ending also sounds just as cryptic with Philip kind of, did he just disappear or whatever? So there's this miraculous work at the beginning. There's this miraculous work at the end. There's this, you know, kind of cryptic nature to both. So I think it seems fair to suggest again that Philip did not have every detail. He was actually given very vague instructions. And if that's the case, then his obedience is that much more impressive. Most definitely. I mean, most of us, we, you know, we almost all have had one point or another where we've been like, hmm, I wonder if I, wonder if I should talk to that person about Jesus. Um, it, it happens. And, and just as a side note, a good rule of thumb is, is if you feel like you maybe <laughs> should, yes, you should. Um, even if you find out you were wrong, you weren't wrong. Yeah. So <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Um, more often than not, we though we tend to ignore that feeling, or we tend to stifle, stuff it down, and um, 
that's what's so important about about Philip's obedience is is he he did go and he did what the spirit wanted him to do. And so we can definitely take a lesson from that for sure. Uh, something that uh, another big question here is is really when we think about this Ethiopian official, who was he and and what was he doing in Jerusalem? And so the text itself does give us some details. So one we uh, we do see again, he was an Ethiopian now. Here's the thing that is an, is a bit of a twist, though, that um, the Ethiopia that he was a part of is not entirely the Ethiopia that exists today. Where he was from was mo- was more modern day Sudan. Um, that's that's where that was a part of. Um, he was a servant of the queen. Um, Candace was not her name, by the way. That was a title. Um, and he was her treasurer. So this is a pretty high-ranking official. Um, what's interesting, though, too, is is because the, the text says that he was in Jerusalem to worship. This means, and he happened to have a scroll of Isaiah. Um, most likely, this was a Gentile God-fearer. And so this is something that happened uh, really kind of throughout the, the, the time of the height of Israel's kingdom and beyond, where uh, where there were Gentiles who would believe in the God of Israel and would want and would worship Him, but they weren't necessarily part of the community. And so he was one of these. And many of the earliest converts in the church um, were um, both in in uh, especially among Gentiles. Many of the earliest Gentile ones were these God-fearing Gentiles. And then it extended out beyond that to the people who had never heard of the God of Israel before. So that's that's kind of an interesting that's that's kind of an interesting thing. And and something that um, you know when we think about our context today in where we're 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 ministering. Um, one again the caveat of we don't apply you know, Jerusalem, uh, yeah. Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth to our context. Those are specific places at specific times. However, when we think about the areas in which we live, there is a, a helpful principle there. Um, you know, Brian, we live and serve in the south of America. And so there is very much a um, a Christ-hauntedness in, <laughs> um, in, uh, in the culture here. Um, in that um, there are some trappings and ba- and some understandings of of things, but not a not a strong full picture. Um, it would not be accurate to say that the overriding culture um, is formed and shaped in a Christ-centered way. Um, it is. It has some Christianish things, which is different. And so that's something that. Um, that but that gives us an opportunity because we can go in and we can we can have conversations about about things like hey that 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 habit of yours do you know why yeah. you do that you know things like that those are really helpful and even in places where um where those trappings have more or less disappeared there are still vestiges of of christian christian thinking and wisdom and practice that pe- that are just part of Western culture that um, that we can we can go back to and we can draw on and we can say the foundation of this thing that you care about 
is actually here. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, as you're describing this, it it would be kind of like if somebody were wearing a cross for jewelry and you would be able to say, Mm -hmm. do you know what that means? It's like a layup, a gimme, if you will, an easy opening to get to the gospel, like Philip had with this Ethiopian reading Isaiah 53. I mean, that's just a a layup, right? And and it kind of goes back to the question you let off with, you know, can does God ever give us the perfect divine appointment? Well, this one seems like it is one. If it's not, this is as close as, as we can get to it. I think a lot of people listening may have had similar. I've had experiences where it's like, all right, this is just, you can clearly see God just bringing everything and aligning everything. Um, and, and when you're part of something like that, it's so encouraging and so fun. Many times, of course, it doesn't seem that way, but we still trust God is bringing about what he desires. But here, I mean, could this divine appointment get any better? It doesn't seem like it. I mean, the, the, the officials reading Isaiah 53 invites him in. The only, the only problem here is Philip having to run alongside the chariot for however long he had to run before he was invited in. Um, you know, trying to share the gospel when you're out of breath, I don't know how good that goes, but um, apparently it went well for Philip. I think the next major question is, um, was the Ethiopian correct in his response to Philip? When Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, well, how can you unless somebody explains it to you? So was he right in that? And I think yes and no is the way we have to answer that. Yes, he was right in that we all need the Holy Spirit, that we need the Holy Spirit to open our minds and hearts. We read about this in 1 Corinthians, that the world, they can read the scriptures, but they don't understand it because they don't have the mind of of Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit in them to guide them to what's true. So they can understand it on one level, on an intellectual level, of course. They can understand the literature but they, they can't really truly understand it in the fullness of, of that term. So in that sense, the Ethiopian was correct. Nobody can understand the scripture without the Holy Spirit's help. But if he meant another person, which was probably what he had in mind, I think we can come back and say, well, no, not really. Um, all, we have to keep this in mind. All others who God has given us to help us learn and grow in the scripture are a gift from God. So pastors, teachers, um, commentary tools, and so forth. You can kind of think of those as somebody explaining to you as well. These are all gifts that we should not disparage. um, We should not shy away from. We should be grateful for. But do we need them? As the the Ethiopian is, is kind of suggesting, this is where I'd say no. You can put a believer with the Holy Spirit on a deserted island with the Bible And that person can grow in his or her faith and understand what they're reading through the Holy Spirit's help alone. But again, so do do we need? No. So here's the thing. We need to value reliable help, but we cannot rely on help. That's an important difference there. So don't let others be your crutch. I've seen this from time to time. I've seen people who feel they can't do it on their own. And so they go and they just get fed by their pastor or by their teacher and they don't dive in their own. And what they're doing is, first of all, you can't grow as much because you don't have your teacher or your pastor there with you all the time. And second, you're denying yourself the joy of 
of you diving into scripture and God working in you and through you and bringing you to a deeper understanding. That, that's irreplaceable. So yes and no, the Ethiopian was right and he wasn't quite right. And, and that really is important. And I mean, that, that even applies to what we're doing right now. Like this, this whole conversation is designed to help you as you study for yourself, not to replace, not to replace anything that you would, you would learn on your own. And so that is, and, and I mean, we've all met people who have, and probably been people at at one time or another who have uh, been more prone to quote specific individuals um, as like, as almost your source of truth. And um, like we have, you know, for example, I, I, I have a great fondness for Charles Spurgeon, Um, but it would be a mistake for me to, or look quote or look for Spurgeon's opinion on everything rather than studying the scriptures yeah. for myself. In the same way, I have a great I have a great appreciation for my church's pastor. And but I don't but it would equally be a mistake to look at solely what he is saying and not look for myself too. The scriptures themselves advocate for this that this whole I, this is where you get this concept of uh, that uh, you know, in Christian circles, you hear hear people say they want that they would encourage us to be like the Bereans who tested everything against the Scripture for themselves. They even tested Paul yep. against it. So, uh, so that is an important important thing. Uh, another question that is is here is so we we've we've talked about uh, this layup. We've talked about Philip. Um, helping him, like explaining all of this. What was, so what was the core of his message? And so in verse 35, he, he makes his explanation. And, and ultimately the short version is, is he preached Jesus. He preached the gospel and um, the spirit could not have given him a better gimme moment than this with, uh, with Isaiah 53 being the passage that he got to start from. And then, and then work his way out and be able to explain everything uh, that, that happened and that is in the scriptures. Because it says, he said, beginning there, but he didn't stop there. And so that is, so that's, that's really, really important for us to remember is that whenever we are talking to anyone about the scriptures, and honestly, it doesn't have to be a, a layup passage like Isaiah 53, but anywhere. We start with Jesus and we work our way out. If we don't get to Jesus, we we haven't actually taught the scriptures sufficiently. We haven't explained them sufficiently. Um, and, and, and that's the thing that makes Christian teaching distinct and unique in all the world is that what we are to teach on is not good is not good and wise principles for living. It's not good behaviors. It's not to encourage to encourage following an example. We're supposed to teach Jesus. Yep. And that's what we do. Yeah, it's one of the things uh, that, again, is perhaps the main takeaway from this whole passage. And it's so important to remember, I, you know, there are other, it's important that we hold doctrines, even secondary doctrines matter and so forth. And it's, and it's okay to teach on secondary doctrines, of course, but we can never lose sight of this, that, that we are called 
to preach Jesus and, and you preach him. So if you're teaching secondary doctrines, it's so that people see Jesus better and understand Jesus better and know Jesus better and love him better and serve him better. So I love this, uh, this section because it just reminds me of that. It, it, it clarifies. And I know there have been times in my ministry in the past where it's easy to deviate from this. You, you get sidetracked. And so, you know, I'm, uh, you've probably heard as well, Aaron, a lot of pastors will have something on uh, where they preach from the pulpit is the, you know, nomenclature a lot of know that say, you know, something like this, you know, show Jesus or, or give the people Jesus or, sir, we would have you to show us Jesus or something to that effect as a reminder of what the win of proclaiming the gospel of preaching scriptures is. Um, so when we see this passage, the next question we have um, is one that uh, maybe not everybody thinks, but it's there uh, to, to be raised. So the Ethiopian clearly trusts in Christ, and as they're going along, he sees water, and he desires to be baptized, and so Philip baptizes him. Again, that suggests that uh, Philip went beyond just preaching, hey, the life, death, and burial of Jesus. Apparently, baptism was mentioned there somehow as well, or maybe this Ethiopian just knew about it, but somehow, you know, baptism was on the radar. And mm-hmm. Philip baptizes him. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people would look at this and say, well, does this passage then prove that spontaneous baptism is best? And this is not the first time we've sp- seen spontaneous baptisms in the book of Acts. Um, and we have to acknowledge that. Uh, so this is a passage, at least, that can be used to support spontaneous baptisms. And those who practice that, I, I think, would readily recognize this as, a, as an important passage. Sure. But it's a step to go from this supporting them to this affirming that it's the ideal model. First of all, it's not taught there specifically. It doesn't state it. It's just giving us an example of what happens which takes us back to the question, you know, is Acts more descriptive or is it more prescriptive? So depending on how you see Acts, I personally think it's more descriptive than prescriptive. But then also, the context, are, are we seeing something happening here in a universal context or is it unique? And I would argue at least this, it could be more unique because you think about it, Philip did not stay with this Ethiopian and start discipling him and then baptize him later. So it could have simply been Philip recognizing this is a one-time encounter I'm going to have. Yeah, I'll baptize him now because I won't have a second chance. And so had Philip had his druthers, he may have wanted to wait. We don't know. So again, as you and I often talk about having grace with one another, there are those who would say, no, we should not baptize spontaneously like this. And I think we need to have grace for those who do and say, well, they can make a case for it. But at the same time, those who are in favor of spontaneous baptisms should not look at those who want to delay them. And, and usually that delay is so that we can do our best to affirm that the person truly has trusted in Christ. So we are, we are protecting believers' baptism. And so mm-hmm. th- that, that group would say, wait a minute, I, I think it's better to do a spontaneous baptism because it's part of the kind of the... Uh, 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 demonstration of faith. But those of you who delay, I disagree with you, but it's okay. I see where you support that. But again, we just want to be fair to the text and not force the text to prove something it's not intended to prove. Yeah. And and that really is an important thing. Um, we uh, particular, particularly be desiring to be gracious to those who 
hold different positions from from one another on this or any of the other issues that that come up as question marks in acts as we go along and there's a lot of them um you know <laughs> and, and and it really just depends on where you live in terms of your um your theological tradition within within the broad spectrum of uh faithful christianity yeah. so now astute listeners may have noticed something interesting when i was reading um several minutes ago which is there's a verse i didn't read verse 37 why was this not there there's a simple reason for that this is one of the handful of disputed verses and disputed disputed passages there are a few of them in the new testament um there is a big chunk of a chapter of john's gospel that is disputed the back half of the end of mark's gospel is disputed and so that's why you'll either see um in those two instances you'll see you'll typically see a square bracket at the start and at the end um in how it's formatted in your in your bible um if you are um it, but if you are, um, you know, most familiar with, say, a King James version, you're going to just see it in the text, yeah. and it's just going to be there. There might be a footnote um, in in modern versions um, and and stuff like that. So the CSB does not does not include this, and and it's really just a question of uh, whether or not it should be considered a part of Scripture based on unclear manuscript evidence. So this verse or this passage is not included in the earliest manuscripts. And that is the thing that is usually the clue for whether or not something was in the original. If it isn't in the earliest ones, it raises a flag. So, and it could be that it's as simple as it was a copyist error and it wasn't there, or it could be that it was someone making a note on theirs and it ended up working its way in, (laughs) Um, like how we mark up our Bibles today. So... Um, our folks who work on translations can explain this significantly <laughs> better than I think either Brian or myself can. So, but uh, but this is the basics of how they do it. Um, and there's a n- lot of nuance that is not there <laughs> because I've not sat on a translation committee, and nor have no, you. I have not. Nope. So, but the big idea. But this is so. This is what verse thirty-seven says. It says. Uh, that Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. This is the this is in response to the question of being whether or not he can can go and get baptized. And so the Ethiopians said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so we can see as we as we read the text itself that the exclusion of this verse doesn't change the substance of the text or any of of its teaching. Its inclusion wouldn't be problematic. Either all it does is it creates the explicit call response portion of the gospel uh, of gospel proclamation, which is not in the text that was read earlier. Um, and so either way, it's fine. We either imply that 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 he said you can if you you believe, and then he he professed faith in Jesus, or we or it was either explicitly stated and included. Either way, you get the same. You get the same result. Um, the question, though, is: Is it more likely that some scribes chose to leave this off as if it were inauthentic, or 
that some scribes added it in believing that something was missing in Luke's account? It's a good question. There's not really consensus on it, but it seems like the latter is more plausible than the former. Yeah, this is one where, you know, you can't imagine, you know, there's probably a third at least um, alternative when you're thinking about why some uh, verses and so forth appear in some manuscripts and not others. You know, a copyist mistake, a note or whatever, but some could be an intentional inclusion that some scribist didn't understand his pay grade level and decided it would take him on himself to add something or delete something, you know, says so you're writing and, and to be a little bit more um, positive toward that person, you know, imagine a scribe who's copying and he comes across something that's confusing. It doesn't seem like it's right. He might conclude, wait a minute, I'm actually copying a copy here. They weren't copying from the originals. So you're copying copies of copies of copies at some point. And he might mm-hmm. then say, I wonder, did somebody add this by accident? I'm going to choose not to copy it to be safe. And so you could have that or the opposite. Wait a minute. Something seems missing here. Let me add it in. That seems more likely that some cop, some scribe, as he was writing this, said, wait a minute. We can't have Philip just baptizing this Ethiopian. We wouldn't even see where, where does he profess faith? We need to have a profession of faith. Um, and so he may have added that in. Again, we don't know, but that latter right. seems a lot more plausible. It does. It does. And and again, it, it bears a, an appropriately charitable reading of the possibilities says this was not, you know, this was definitely not a malicious yes. thing. Again, if you, if you read it, what does it change, whether it's there or not? Not a thing. So this was not a... Yeah, it's not it's not a, really an attempt to change the the narrative. It's an attempt to clarify something. If and you and I've talked about this before, but if somebody's listening has not heard that, or if this is new and you're shaken right now, you're wait a minute, is the Bible reliable? Yes, it is. As as Aaron said, there's only a, there are only a handful of these, and when you look at them, you will realize as as Aaron, you've kind of talked about with this one and the others, none of them really make a, a difference. None of the the uh, problem passages deal with text that would cause us to change doctrines. Um, so whether they're included or excluded, it matters. We, we don't want to, you know, it matters. Mm-hmm. But let's not be shaken. There's not many of them. And again, when you look at the manuscript evidence, it's overwhelmingly supportive that we have a very reliable scripture. Um, and so I don't want you, if you're listening, you've never rubbed shoulders with this. I don't want you kind of freaking out. Um, the Bible we have is reliable. Just to be clear, Aaron and I would both affirm inspiration and inerrancy. Um, so I don't want you to get confused. So. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the last question that we would have, let's go back a little bit safer ground. Um, All right. Is yeah, let's not get in trouble. Yeah, and we mentioned this earlier. What what happened at the end here? You know, you read. So so you had this baptism, and then look at what you see in verse thirty nine. When they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared elsewhere, and that's how it ends. So what happened mm-hmm. here? Well, if you read it, the natural reading, it makes it seem like Philip literally disappeared. He came up out of the water, and the Ethiopian rubbed the water out of his eyes, and Philip was literally gone. 
Or you could read this and say, well, no, it's just kind of uh, some poetic writing that maybe when they came up out of the water, Philip said, all right, I got to go. And, and the spirit guided Philip to go to the next place as he had to bring him to the road. Either is a fair reading. I think the first is the most natural, that this is miraculous. So if you pressed me and said, Brian, what's happening here? I would probably say, I think we see a miracle here, um, which makes sense because it's going to affirm this Ethiopian in his new faith, right? He's going to need that potentially to carry with him as he continues to follow Christ maybe by himself, where he's going. Mm-hmm. And it also would affirm Philip. So it would make sense for this to be a miracle, but it's not crystal clear. Um, it could be either way. But you clearly see the bookend. The Holy Spirit leading Philip here and the Holy Spirit taking Philip away. Yeah, that is, and and that is one that, I mean, I'll be honest, I have I've wondered about for a long time. Like, okay, what is actually going on here? And... I'm okay with living in that tension yeah. of just not knowing. There's not. There's nothing wrong no. with not knowing. I mean, yeah. The rule of thumb, in case anybody's curious, the rule of thumb when it comes to reading scriptures, you always take the natural, the most natural reading first, unless there's a compelling reason not to. So, for example, and also you have to keep in mind the context of the the writing. So Acts is more of a history. So you are going to read it more factual. That yes, this is not figurative. This is not a made-up story or whatever. This is not symbolic. The Ethiopian doesn't represent somebody. This, this has actually happened. Revelation, for example, you read differently because it's a, it's a prophetic book full of symbolism. But even in there, when you're reading Revelation, your starting point is, I'm going to read this on a natural way. What's the most obvious meaning? Unless it's clear, I shouldn't be taking it that way. So you get to the beginning of Revelation. John was on an island, Patmos. That's literal. You don't, right, what does Patmos represent? But then you quickly get to this vision of Jesus, and Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth as a tongue. Clearly, that is not meant to be taken literally. And so that's kind of the rule of thumb. As we're reading scripture, that's your, 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 your guideline, if you will. So here, when I carry that to here, the most natural reading is he literally was taken away. I'm glad you brought that up because that is a really important point with what we what we do when and even a statement I made earlier with start at Jesus or or make sure that you're focused on Jesus whenever you're teaching wherever you're teaching from. That doesn't mean that you read scripture in an allegorical way where you ignore the context and you find whatever kind of trace um you know, a little more cynically, wherever you can reach for something that could possibly connect, maybe, no matter how tenuous, to the gospel um, in a text that you that you make that the center point. That's not how you. That's not how you interpret scripture correctly. Yeah. Um, you and and I think that and that's one of the things that we try to do so carefully with gospel project across all ages is to make sure that we that people who study the scriptures using our resources that they know what the text says but then they get to see where it where it leads to the gospel so whether that's our need for Jesus where it's where in a true and proper prophecy of what Jesus, prophecy or foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do, um, where it points us back to what he was doing, all of these kinds of things. That's what we do. And, and I think we do a good job. We try. 
we try. So, um, all right. So to, we've got to, we've got to wrap this one up for today, but, um, before we do, let's talk about what kind of guidance that we can offer, um, our listeners in approaching this passage from a discipleship perspective. Yeah. Well, just because we have, we've taken quite a while talking about these different issues and I, I hope they've been meaningful. And we've hit on the first two of the three takeaways I can think of. So let's just kind of blitz through those quickly, and I'll talk about the third a little bit more. The first one is is to follow the Spirit. We've talked about that. We need to be obedient to follow the Spirit, even if it doesn't seem like it makes sense. If the Spirit's guiding us, we follow. The second is we preach Jesus. We've talked about this. We, we, we don't preach side doctrines. We preach Jesus. But the third one that we really haven't dealt with that I think we need to talk about, at least for a minute, is we, we reach the ethnos. We reach all people. Um, and that's what we see here. We're remembering uh, the formula we talked about, Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Here we see this Ethiopian. We see the expansion of the gospel to all toward all the peoples of the earth. And it's a reminder to us to have the heart for the nations. Um, literally, the nations all around the world from us, and even the nations that are near us, because a lot of us live in areas where we might have a large population of people who are uh, coming from other parts of the world. And sometimes we can reach the nations because they're right down the street from us. Um, But then also, this is a reminder that we preach Jesus, period, to all and everybody. We, We don't focus on any single population. We preach Jesus period to all. So I think that's another important takeaway as we are discipling those under us. And that's a great place for us to wrap this up on. So uh, thanks, Brian, for chatting about this. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. 